welcome to the Dow of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. So, Doug, you wanted to kick off this podcast with uh, a story, I think. I did. Um, let me just say that the book which I've been meaning to read all summer, and which I feel guilty having not read, even though this is the last episode in our season, which is kind of about AI, is Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI. And I'm looking at it now on my desk in front of me, and it's making me feel very guilty that I haven't read it yet. But I have read other stuff, and I've been doing some thinking and I've just been talking to Helen Beetham, who is actually going to feature on season eight of our podcast, which is a, a submission to the Journal of Media Literacy. Anyway, so I want to start this off by talking about something I did with my daughter last night. She needed to apply for the role of sports leader at her school. She was encouraged to do that by her by the head of PE at her school. And she was like, oh, my goodness, this has to be in tomorrow. Um, and I haven't done it yet. And she was like due to go to bed. So I said, it's fine. Let's just like get ChatGPT to help us, right? So I, I subscribed to that. So I'm talking about ChatGPT4. So I got her to give the context. Like, what is the context here? Sports leadership, middle school. Um, this is what sports leader means, all that kind of thing. And then got ChatGPT to ask her some questions. So she had eight questions, you know, one to eight. She put number one. Here's the answer to this, all this kind of stuff. So she answered all those questions. And if you think about it, that couldn't, that might not have been typed in. That could have been her speaking and it being like speech to text. She then fills that in and it just writes, a, it like drafts uh, a letter. She copies and pastes that into Google Docs, changes some of the words that she wouldn't have used as a 12-year-old girl, um, sends it off to her teacher, done. So I want to use that as a, as a way into this episode because... What I think that shows is that the way in which we're communicating as humans is through text, but now we're getting to a stage where an AI is just spitting out text in a form which is socially acceptable so that we can tick the boxes. And actually where we go from here is probably not just producing masses of text, I think. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to get into this episode because today we wanted to talk specifically about AI literacy. And um, literacy is something that people often think about through through that text lens. So reading and writing, being able to read text, being able to write text. But neither one of us actually thinks that that is what literacy truly means. Um, you wrote an entire thesis uh, about what digital literacies, plural, um, mm -hmm. mean and how to how to help people develop them. I also wrote a thesis doing a meta-analysis on different kinds of media information literacies and focused in on web literacy specifically. Um, and so if we start to talk about AI literacy, how how do you think that that is different from the other kinds of literacies work that that you've done in the past? Or is it so, different? Well, it's interesting, right? So there's there's two elements to this. First of all, is it fundamentally different to what's gone before? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, you mentioned the work, my kind of doctoral thesis work. So that too, like yours, was looking at all of these different models and frameworks and stuff of digital literacy. 
and thinking, well, what have they got in common? What's different? And what I realized was that there was as many different frameworks and ways of approaching digital literacy as there were researchers in the field. So I came up with this kind of anti-framework, which looked at different essential elements of digital literacy so that people could come up with their own definitions and think and apply it to different um, contexts and have a conversation about it rather than just being imposed. Because one of the things about literacy, if you think about it, is that the people who are defining what literacy, what counts as literacy, are the people who have the power. And I think what's happening now, if you go on LinkedIn, if you just look on any kind of professional platform, it's flooded with people having thought pieces about AI literacy or what AI means for this industry or whatever. And what they're doing is, yes, they're interested in it and how it affects them, but they're also jostling for position in terms of their take being the right one. So I just wanted to kind of throw in there that literacies are always about about power. But the the eight different essential elements that I came up with in my thesis were um, the cultural aspect. So in AI, that would be like recognizing how AI impacts different cultures and societies, as well as kind of ethical considerations. Uh, the cognitive. So this is like understanding the basic principles of AI and machine learning and data analysis. So like, how how does it work? How do they, what's the mental model here? Uh, third one would be constructive. So being able to create and modify and contribute to AI technologies, like working with algorithms, understanding how they work and stuff. Uh, the fourth one would be communicative. So like being able to communicate with other people using AI. So a bit like my daughter did last night, collaborating with, with AI technologies as well, which are increasingly being built into technologies. And then just the last four, and I realize this is a lot, um, the confident, the kind of the, the confident angle of this. So being comfortable and confident in using AI tools, navigating AI-based systems. So realizing that you'll make mistakes, that you can explore and learn and adapt, and there'll always be something new there. The creative aspect is, the is like um, you added some notes to some photographs in scare quotes that I'd created using Midjourney, which is an AI tool. So the creative aspect is using is creating AI generated art or using it to, you know, make mashups between Freddie Mercury and Adele or, or something like that. The critical aspect is something I've just been talking to Helen Beetham. I worked with Helen at JISC on digital literacy stuff. She's writing some wonderful stuff on her Substack. But this is the critical evaluation of AI technologies and algorithms, implications on society. She's talking about things from a feminist point of view and labor um, and, and kind of how that works. Then the last one is often one which is missed out, which is the civic aspect. So how, how to engage with AI technologies to participate in civic activities and social and political life. So AI for social good, advocating for responsible AI policies, um, promoting equity, so people's access to AI tools, which could be very much a digital divide issue. And if we can, if we can integrate all of those in a holistic way, we don't need one definition of what AI literacy is for people to develop skills and understanding in that area. Well, that was a lot. Yeah, no, I I was just thinking, you know, with those, with your elements, um, I was just thinking about some of the other frameworks that I've been noodling on about in, in regards to AI. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I wrote a post about power and AI. I was looking at French and Raven's Six Forms of Power and thinking about how power actually 
changes or how it will change because of AI and not always in a negative light. We've had a couple of discussions this season um, where I kept trying to like, let's talk about the benefits of AI um, because I think it's a really exciting time. And it's, it's interesting because like when I was doing my master's and when I was thinking about all of these different literacy frameworks, like one of the things that I kept tripping over was this idea of us being in like a, a structural divide. Like we're in a time between times and it seems like with technology that's moving faster. And so this always comes up for me as like, how do we, um, how do we create things using tech based on tech in a way that helps like humans get to that next stage faster. Um, and so a structural divide in education is like, it's the time between agriculturalism and industrialism. You know, when the, when the printing press was, was invented, it was the time between the printing press being invented and like the masses being able to read um, because there was huge cultural and societal shift during like during these kind of in-between times. And I feel like with tech, We've been in that in-between time for 20, 30 years. Um, and with AI moving faster and faster, it feels like being uh, web literate, information literate, media literate, tech literate, uh, AI literate, anything that, you know, puts the literacy on it is, um, you know, is a, it's a moving target, Right which I think is the point of your essential elements, right? It's, it's like essentially saying these are the essential elements for any sort of digital literacy and plural. And it doesn't matter what, what sort of the semantics around that literacy is. We live in a society where it is today it requires more than being able to write with a pencil or read the written printed word. It's, it's something that's, that's advanced. And we're getting to a point where that target is shifting so often, it's hard to sort of say what is actually important here. Yeah. And in the same way, you know, we, we've just been talking about our kind of postgraduate degrees in the same way that when you become an academic or you get your postgraduate degree, in, in some senses, it's being accepted into the community of people who have got those those kind of badges of honor, as it were, and, and the academic community. In the same way, the, sa the same thing happens on a much more informal level with children, people who can't previously write, for example, being accepted into the literate community. And those literate communities are multiple and overlapping. So, for example, you enter into the world of being a literate user of English at some level when you can start writing your own name or, or 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 something like that something where you can actually write something down we had a conversation about our use of duolingo recently where we talked about how important is it to be able to speak the language as opposed to be able to read it and write it and that's interesting from a literacy point of view as well um what you've been alluding to there is a bit like what Walter Ong talks about in the 1980s about secondary orality. So I'm just on the Wikipedia page for this, uh, just as a summary, and it says, secondary orality is orality, so that's speech acts and stuff, that is dependent on literate culture and the existence of writing, such as a television anchor reading the news or radio. While it exists in sound, it does not have 
the features of primary orality because it presumes and rests upon literate thought and expression and may even be people reading written material like I'm doing here. The secondary orality is not usually repetitive, redundant, agnostic, etc., the way primary orality is. Um, And cultures that have a lot of secondary orality are not necessarily similar to primarily oral cultures. So basically it's saying, look, there's cultures that are not literate and we're, you know, we're aware of those kind of cultures, cultures in the past, maybe some cultures now. Those are kind of pre-literate cultures. There's cultures like ours, which are primarily literate cultures. So the thing which we value is the ability to be able to read and write texts. And those texts become more and more metaphorical as time goes on. They come, become not just um, words, but also kind of uh, d- illustrations like Brian Mothers does. But then we end up in a world where, because we can communicate like through this podcast, like through video, and like through other kinds of ways with other people, the written text becomes less important. And that's the kind of secondary orality as far as I understand it. So we have this Gutenberg parenthesis of a time, a very small amount of time, like you were talking about, Laura, between times in history, where previously we were dominated by an oral culture, we're leading to a world where we're dominating by a secondary um, secondary orality. And then this Gutenberg parenthesis from the invention of the printing press to about kind of like the late 20th century is a time when the written world was, was predominant. See, I think this is really interesting because I think that with the advancement of technology and, and certainly with the pandemic, um, I think that some of the like, pre-secondary orality uh, modes are coming back. Um, So like during the pandemic, a lot of people found time to sort of pull together what they had experienced in their life up until that point. So like a lot of memoirs came out, a lot of people were writing about a a memory and experience that they had through, through life and trying to like pull up some of some of the stories that people had about themselves in a, in a way that other people could digest and not just through the written form but like you know there were any any wide variety of like I'm reflecting on the human experience kinds of products projects I don't don't really know what word to use because I saw them in all forms or have seen them everything from um when we were allowed to meet in real life again people spinning up like storytelling hour for adults (laughs) to you know to to like long form book memoirs to podcasts that you know dive into a, a particular kind of experience and and then of course you know there's other sorts of media so I, I feel like the, you know, as, as tech um, sort of pushes forward, it makes the written word the, like the predominant way to, to kind of interact as it has been for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also seeing people use these other methods to, to tell their oral histories in a way that we haven't seen before, which I think is, is interesting. And, and the, the interesting thing to me is that you're absolutely right. People use their dominant what they're used to what they what they're used to being able to produce and also what they think other people will accept in terms of of texts so for example if you're going to produce something for university then you're probably going to write some kind of essay or something like that but increasingly universities employers whoever even the journal for media literacy which 
we're producing season eight for accept multimodal um, submissions. Hmm. So, but the problem is our small brains as humans take a while to understand the possibilities of what you can do with new tools. So we, we're talking about AI here, but we're using a, a chat window, which is something that we're used to, to be able to interact with it. And people are mm. saying, well, you know, we're not going to be using chat windows for much longer, but we can't really comprehend of what that might look like. And that reminds me of a very famous quotation from Marshall McLuhan, where he said, uh, the past went that away. When faced with a totally new situation, we always tend to attach ourselves to the objects, to the flavor of the most recent past. We look at the present through a rear view mirror. We march backward into the future. And I think that that kind of quotation from the medium is the massage, which is um, uh, a famous book of his. The fact that we we look to the past to try and understand the present is a is not just an indictment of of kind of the human condition and the way that we we think but also a way in which we can think about this parenthesis in that it's not going to be this way for long. And so when people come along and say, look, ChatGPT can spit out an essay, it can spit out a letter, it can spit out an email easily, instead of that being the de facto API between human beings and organizations, we can do better than that. And we already know how to do better than that. The example I was I was giving to Helen Beetham in our pre-chat just now was... You know, as a parent, and this doesn't apply to me because I outsource all of this to my wife because I'm a terrible human being. But um, the, the kind of the chats that were on for all of the kids' sporting activities, there are some chats where it literally just has the next game is at this this place at this time, and that's all the chats for. But there's a lot of chats where the parents are almost performing middle class parenting to each other, um, and and sharing a lot of information about how successful their kids are and all this kind of stuff which means that there has to be a separate platform for literally a thumbs up or a thumbs down as to whether little Johnny is going to be able to play in the next sport ball game next weekend. And so all we needed there was the thumbs up or the thumbs down, the emoji, this new style of communication. But instead, we get this performative text because people need to interact with each other and texts are never just information um, giving in terms of, please meet me on the corner of this street and this street at 8 p.m. on Friday night. It's always telling you more than that. And that's where literate practice has become much more metaphorical than just the information that they're supposed to be conveying. Yeah, this, I mean, this is kind of where it gets, if we think specifically about AI and the fact that we can't really look at the past to understand what's coming. Um, like a, we, we had an episode this season where we were talking about cognitive liberty and some of the so neuroimaging kinds of AI that are developing and how AI is helping humans to process data in a way that our tiny little brains take entirely too long for. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, even if you read a lot of uh, sci-fi, it's still hard to imagine what is actually going to change for us in the next five to 10 years. So even just like generative AI, it's been on the scene for a while, but it really hit sort of critical mass in what, November of last year. And since then, I've noticed in myself that my um, my behaviors haven't changed all that much in terms of using these these large language models. Whereas I think for you, this is something that's become like just part of your regular daily routine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting how much time it takes for different people to sort of 
embrace certain kinds of technologies and how how they embrace them because we're mm. we're going to do it differently and there is no right or wrong and i wonder what that actually means for our literacy like i would certainly say when it comes to you know generative ai and you know when i need help i'm like hey doug how do i prompt this you know mm. hey doug you've been using this a lot more than i i have can you you know help me there and it's it's not because um you know you're quote unquote, more AI literate than I am or something. It's no, because no. of the experience that you have and the, and the play that you've had in learning it, I think. Yeah. And I, I do, you know, you're right. And I think some of it is to do with the mental models going back to the Marshall McLuhan thing as well. So the way that um, I conceptualize um, kind of AI and LLMs and, and that kind of stuff, the, there was a post on LinkedIn, which I realized that I absolutely agreed with, which is that LLMs like ChatGPT, I treat like very, very smart and very uh, capable interns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you've got an intern in your organization, they bring lots of energy, they bring new approaches, but they also make lots of mistakes. Yeah? yeah. So you have to be you have to be willing to like kindly correct them to put them on the right path. So for example, if you ask ChatGPT to write a response within four hundred words. It will confidently tell you that it's written something which is 392 words. You can literally count those words, or you can run it through something which you trust can count words, and it'll be 250 words, because it doesn't always get things right. So as long as you've got the the domain knowledge, the patience, and the um, the ability to go and check some stuff, then it's a fantastic tool. I use it all the time to summarize articles for Thought Shrapnel now. Because sometimes when I read things quickly, I miss some nuance and it'll say, oh, this talks about this. I'm like, oh, does it? And I'll read it again and then I'll put that in. But I always want to have my voice and my way of saying stuff. Hmm. Um, sometimes I just don't care because it's like it's just some text that needs to go in a box and I will just produce that text with the use of ChatGPT. But it's interesting how these practices will change over time once people just assume that people are using LLMs to produce presentations, to produce essays, whatever. It's it's a massive thing for education at the moment, I guess. I, the thing that you just said there is like, you know, the your process and, and mine as well in using some of these AI tools includes a, a piece of literacy that is a kind of let, left off of the very, you know, pithy literacy as reading and writing uh, definition. And that is the critical thought angle. So like you can't use these tools without actually putting on your critical thinking cap and saying, is that really true? what is, you know, like what is actually being said to me here? How is this being presented? What's the, you know, what's the stylistic model here? It's a, you know, the, the, there's a, a another piece of literacy that's often left behind, which is the, you know, the critical thought piece. And for, especially for like large language models, this is massively important. It's not just fact che checking, you know, I, I like to think of the AIs as being, I, I like what you said that they're, they're basically a very competent intern because mm. I tend to think of them as quite stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you put it as like more of a, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of a, a mentor, as opposed, uh, as opposed to, you know, it's like just trying to get something for free out of this AI. Mm. I, I don't know. We, we sort of, it's funny because we're kind of anthropomorphizing 
AI right now, but AI doesn't think it's, it just, it doesn't think it doesn't have critical thought, which is why it will confidently tell you that it's 200 and whatever, 399 words. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why, I mean, you get loads of people who will go on LinkedIn and various other places and tell you, you know, give you cheat sheets for prompting and stuff. But I've found, I've tried lots of different things. Um, I've tried people who have different scripts, which output stuff in JSON and then take the different JSON outputs and then combine those together into something else, like all different kinds of stuff. But the most successful way I've found, um, or two things, first of all, is to ask an LLM to do things step by step, because Mm -hmm. if it tries to make conceptual leaps, it gets things wrong because it's only a predictive text model. That's all it is really. And secondly, um, if you get it, like I said, right at the the start of this podcast episode, if you get it to ask you questions so that it's it's making sure that it has all the different dimensions of the thing that you're trying to do, whether it's a letter of application for a thing like my daughter, whether it's a response or an application or text for a website, it's just trying to make sure it's got all the different kind of angles for what would usually be included in such a thing because it's being trained on this massive data set so it it knows the kinds of things that would usually be on a if we were redesigning our website would usually be on the front page of our website so it's it's going to ask you a question because it wants the bit of information that it, it thinks should be there and you fill in that bit of information and it can produce something which is a bit more of a holistic response hmm. so when it comes to literacy it's interesting because one of the things that people have said is that it means that everybody gets a tutor now, Mm -hmm. but everyone doesn't get a tutor as much as a research assistant. I would say it's a bit like having an imperfect, it's a bit like have everyone having an intern. That's what it's like. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got an intern who then comes and shows you stuff, but you have to go, yeah, that's not relevant or no, I can't rely on that source, or that's wrong, or that's not the right number of words, or whatever. You can't just, and obviously kids, teenagers, whatever, who have got the Snapchat AI thing at the top of their um, chat feeds, sometimes will just believe everything it says, or haven't got the domain knowledge. I mean, that's the thing, is that, like, it's actually, it is a skill in and of itself to, to be a mentor, right? To, to mentor other people, to have an intern, to be able to look at something that someone is doing or saying, and to be able to help them understand how to do it better. That, I mean, that's a skill in and of itself. And it's something that doesn't just come with domain expertise, but it comes from like actually collaborating and communicating with people across a wide range of tasks. And it's stuff that you can pick up in your regular life as well. Like, you know, your regular life, not professional, you know, what is it called? Your free time when you interact with other human beings, like paying attention to like, you know, all of the mushy human stuff, like empathy, you know, being able to walk into a room and feel the temperature or the vibe of that room, those kinds of um, like reflective processes are things that we, you know, that we develop over time as humans and people who are self-reflective tend to, you know, dev- like level up on the, that skill set. And without those kinds of skills, AI is, is what you said, it's just a predictive text. And so mm-hmm. it's not going to actually have the guidance that it needs to be an intern that is, you know, 
helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, uh, referencing a, a previous conversation, there's a techno. I'm really. It's a real shame that Audrey Waters um, isn't is focused on health tech instead of ed tech now. Um, I really enjoy her kind of new writing, but for her to take her Cassandra role for for AI would be would be fascinating. Um, because the the kind of techno determinist line that well this is coming so you better get literate. One of the things about being literate is that you're you're making a choice to be literate in that particular mm. domain and, and finding what what's going on. And I feel like because all of this is being driven by proprietary black box tooling, there's no option to to opt out. Um, and again, we're going to be talking to people like Helen Beetham and some other people about this. But like, there's, there's, everything is put on the individual, and you're mm-hmm. you're a bit in the in a bit like, oh, if you don't use Facebook, if you don't like Facebook, don't use it. Well, I don't use Facebook, and it's a massive inconvenience to my life because it's often infrastructure for a lot of the places that I, um, I, I need to interact. That which is why I have to outsource it to 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 my wife. But as soon as you're saying, well. You either accept the license terms or you don't. Yeah, that that isn't the way that literate behaviors kind of work. So I just think it's interesting in the way that we're putting this all on the individual rather than society, which is why I think it's interesting when you put a background in the humanities, like philosophy or English or history or whatever it is, you start thinking about well, what what does a flourishing human society look like, and our are these AI tools taking like a transhumanist approach where eventually the humans become almost redundant? Or are are these AI tools allowing humans to flourish in all of the different ways that humans have and could flourish in future? Whereas um, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think they're they're very tech bro centric with 99% of people in or 97% of people in AI being male or I mean this is you know what you're zeroing in on there is actually like a major problem with a with or like the the big issue underneath a lot of the problems we have so climate change for example we need societal solutions your individual behavior and whether or not you decide to get on that plane while interesting important and you know you can certainly make a moral argument for changing the way you as an individual behave. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, a single private jet is going to emit way more CO2 than Mm. the biggest, you know, transatlantic airliner ever. It's, you know, so we don't have, we as individuals don't have as much power as we're led to believe. And, you know, this is something that we talk out, talk about through the through the lens of capitalism, through the lens of climate change, through you know the, even the lens of education, and you know the work that we do around recognition. The fact is, is that like AI is another place where we need to be making decisions as if we are a collective, as opposed to you know profit driven. And you're right about the the black box, like society having all of AI running everything from the banking industry to, you know, to our, our food production cycles and not knowing how that AI is making decisions or what data it's being um, trained on. This is like, it's, it seems to me just quite stupid. There was a, 
I'm gonna, I can't find it again really quickly, but um, there's a, oh, here we are, here we are. So there's a Wired story from earlier this year that I came across this morning. And it's basically proven that the, you know how it's it's very opaque as to what LLM um, has been, tra- LLMs like ChatGPT have been trained on, hmm. yeah? And so people have said, look, this has been trained on on copyrighted books and poetry and, and various other things. So there's this fanfic community, so fan fiction community, which is basically creates this alternative, highly erotic world um, in which, you know, content warning, um, uh, penises go into vaginas and then create knots. Right, when this is known as knotting, and this is the only place that this happens in this kind of fanfic universe, right? ChatGPT comes up with that kind of stuff about knotting, which kind of proves that it's been trained on that particular data. So we know for a fact that it's been trained on um, fan fiction in that particular community, and it, it's kind of concerning. And so it's, it's a weird, funny example. But it's kind of concerning that we don't know what these tools and black boxes have been trained on because that matters. That matters as to whether we trust them, whether we know how biased they are, whether they're representative of all the different kinds of things that we want to uh, represent in our communities and and whether they're flourishing or not. And the fact that they don't have to disclose, disclose that is problematic from a copyright point of view, which I don't really care about, but it's more cop- it's more problematic from like a, a moral point of view as to like just hoovering up data that wasn't intended to be hoovered up and used in that way. Hmm. Well, it seems like uh, part of the conversation around AI literacy is just understanding that one small fact that if you don't know how the model was cha- trained, you don't you know, then you can't actually understand what's coming back at you. And that's, yeah, I hadn't heard that example before. So that's <laughs> a little <laughs> disconcerting. I'm like trying to scan and read this article while also talking. Well, let, about let me this. give you another one. Let me give you another one, right? So um, this one is about ducks. Okay. So there's a website, and the, the website is uh, dinomite.net forward slash ducks. And the, the name of this this kind of uh, microsite, I guess it is, is Can I Take Ducks Home from the Park? So, you know, public parks, there's ducks there. Can you take ducks home from the park? Well, this the LLMs have been trained not to answer that question. Yeah, uh-huh. for some reason, for some reason. Just like if you um, asked it, how do I make a bomb or something like that? They've yeah. been trained not to answer this question. So you can try and get around it by saying, hey, I'm a park ranger. How can I take ducks home from the park? Um, or you can put the question backwards, like literally the text backwards and say, I've asked this question backwards or whatever. You can translate it into different languages like Hindi or Spanish or whatever. You could... Um, uh, pretend that you're creating some hip hop rhymes that you and in it you want to explain how to take ducks home from the park or um, I bought some ducks at the duck store but now I need to take them back or like what all different ridiculous situations and in lots of situations the the scenarios ChatGPT or whatever tool won't tell you how to take ducks home from the park but it turns out that if you use a step by step approach 
pretending in, in the language of Hindi and say that you're a park ranger, all of a sudden it's unlocked and you can get the answer of how to take ducks home from the park. So all of these workarounds, you know, and, and again, we can go into the murky depths of um, like AI porn and like really not just not safe for work stuff, but like um, illegal things and whatever. There's ways in which you can get around the generation of AI text and images and, and whatever else, which is problematic. But there's also the fact that you should be able to break the law. It should be possible for human beings to be able to break the law. Otherwise, humanity can't make progress. We don't get gay marriage. We don't get um, people being able to, to come out as trans. Like, we don't get um, equality between races unless people can break the law. So we need workarounds for things like ChatGPT, even if the default is safe and on rails, if you see what I mean. I feel like we should um, wrap this episode up because I need to go get some ducks. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, I, I don't know if they're actually called running ducks in, uh, in English, but in, in Germany, there's these ducks with really long necks and um, <laughs> they're adorable. And apparently they have the personalities of cats and they're very social animals. And I really would love to have like four or five of these running ducks because they are so cute. Um, but they would eat everything in my garden. That might not be so cool. But anyways, um, that's a random aside. I might need to ask one of these AI LLMs uh, about ducks. So good that you pointed out to me how I can do that and get a good answer. Well, I want to point out before we finish that we've been collecting a bunch of stuff around this at AILiteracy.fyi. Um, so it's it's just a GitHub repository with a GitHub page um, for things that we've been working on. So, for example, there's Navigating the Future of Media and Information Literacy, a transdisciplinary approach that, Laura, you worked on with Ian. Uh, we did a response to a positioning paper for the UN Internet Governance Forum. We did a response to UNESCO call for contributions around AI literacy. There's also a library there of academic papers with DR, do, no, DOI links, which might be helpful. And then just some examples of the kinds of things where it's not text-based, but how things might be get, about to get quite weird, especially in the run-up to UK election, presidential elections, what's happening in mm. Africa and the coup belt at the moment. Um, and my favourite example, I guess, from this year, especially um, because I've got a daughter who plays a lot of football, is when they... Um, I guess this is giving the game away. They basically changed the faces and the heads of the the female women, uh, French women football players for the heads of the the men um, women uh, the men French football team players, just to show how sexist people are when it comes to looking at women's sports. And that is an amazing use of AI mm. um, to be able to point out um, unfair practices in society. Of course, you could flip that for disinformation and misinformation. So things are going to get a little bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if, I mean, we're going to be talking more about AI next season uh, in this, because we're, we're going to be talking about um, to with doing a collaboration uh, for the journal of media literacy. 
Um, and next season, we're kind of going to unpick literacy a bit more, in particular media, information, AI, all of these different kinds of literacies. Um, and so if you're interested in, in this literacy work, then head over to AILiteracy.fyi and stay tuned for season eight because we're, we're going we're gonna to get nerdy uh, in the academic sense, um, but it'll be a fun conversation with a lot of really great guests. Thanks very much. Cheers for now.